making sense of EU. Welcome to Making Sense of EU, a podcast where scientific research sheds light on the pressing issues of EU affairs. Making Sense of EU is brought to you by the Institut d'Etudes Européennes of the Université Libre de Bruxelles. This series on inequality and the European Union is a product of the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence EU Qualis and is co-funded by the European Union. My name is Maria Isabel Soldevila and I am your host. Welcome once again to Making Sense of EU. You have been many to listen to our first episode and we thank you all for joining us on the different streaming platforms and for writing to contribute with your ideas. Keep them coming. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome two researchers from the Université Libre de Bruxelles, both closely linked to our institute. Marta Matrakova, who is research coordinator at the IEE, and Frederic Poignard, senior researcher, both focused on the research theme EU in the world, a cross-cutting area of research that examines the European Union in terms of global governance. Quite the busy topic these days, I would say. Hi, Marta. Hi, Frederic. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Making Sense of EU. Let's see what we can do to make sense of the external dimension of the European Union. In our last episode, we discussed with Amandine Crespi and Chloé Brière how the EU was starting to feel inequality in its own flesh as the consequences of the pandemic and the current war in Ukraine shake the European Union. We also talked about how new ways of analyzing inequality are now needed to understand what's happening. Perhaps you can start by giving us some context on how inequality both at the EU level and in the rest of the world interact. Sure. In the previous podcast, it was mentioned that the EU is probably the region in the world with the high, lowest level of inequality internally. But that does mean that it suffers from great inequality between itself and the rest of the world, notably between the Europe and the global south. And we've seen most recently, especially between Europe and its closest neighbors, as a lot of its neighborhood has become a source of tensions, instability and uncertainty and insecurity, both for the EU and the people in those regions themselves. Now, such massive levels of inequality between the experiences, the development levels and the opportunities for people within the EU and people beyond the borders of the EU, even at the borders itself of the EU, can become a driver of insecurity, drivers of economic migration, drivers of instability, drivers of jealousy and envy and insecurity, and a driver of dependencies between those outside and within the EU. And these unhealthy, unequal relationships, which are fed by longer historical dynamics, can become truly problematic in the short and longer terms. Marta, you studied the neighborhood, basically. How do you see this kind of situation described by Frederick affect, impact directly how the EU shapes its own external action? So what Frederick mentioned is very well illustrated in the European neighborhood where we have great inequalities at the social and economic level, but also on political level among different countries. So when the European neighborhood policy was created, uh, one of the goals was to establish a ring of friends around the European Union in order to balance some of these inequalities. However, what we have seen since 2010 is that the European borders are surrounded by more and more crises, uh, which illustrate and make very obvious the inequality that exists around the European borders. If I may quickly jump in, 
there is something for your listeners to bear in mind is that when we think of inequality on the global scale, it is of a different quality than inequality within a country or within the European Union. When we talk about inequality within a country or the European Union, we may often talk about social economic inequality, about welfare, about the welfare state, about transfers of wealth and stabilization. Here at the international and global stage, things are a little bit more complex. We are still talking about rights and solidarity and transfer and stability, but obviously between two countries or between one region and another, the dynamics are different. It is not the European Union who guarantees the social and economic rights of citizens in other countries, but it is for the European Union's external action to make sure that it contributes to stabilizing the situation in other countries and does not contribute to deepening existing inequalities. And if you look at it from the outside, you may think that not all third countries, as they call them in the European Union, are made equal. Not all of them are treated equally, or at least that's a perception that, that some of us might get. I give you an example from Latin America, which is the region that I know the most. The countries often complain having been forgotten by the EU as Chinese and Russian cooperation gains traction in, in the area. We can also, you mentioned the relationship with the southern neighborhood. And if we think about Africa, we can do a whole podcast on Africa and the relationship with the EU. So looking at this context that you've laid out, how does the EU's external action work precisely on inequality? What are the things that they can do to diminish them in the world, to bring the own value set of the European Union that it stands for to these other regions? We've heard a lot in the news about an increasingly political commission or a more political European Union or a, even the current one it describes itself as a geopolitical European Commission. What that means is making choices. When an entity is political or geopolitical, it basically sets itself priorities. It accepts that in the global scale, on the global scene, there are inequalities. Not all partners are equally important or equally significant to the European Union. And it sets itself priorities. Now, the citizens and people in the European Union and beyond might agree or disagree with those priorities. We see that the current commission has set two or three priorities. Initially, when entering into power, it had set Africa as a key priority. But obviously, events, events, events have changed that. And we can see that the priority has currently shifted to the eastern neighborhood with obviously the Russian threat and the war in Ukraine. But again, priorities are set by the member states and the European Commission. And the European Union attempts to respond in an unequal way to the unequal partnerships it has. Do you want to add anything, Marta, on this area, specifically as things have shifted to the region that you study the most? Yes, in the eastern uh, neighborhood, what we have seen in the last year is the increasing differentiation between different partners. So we have seen that three of the countries have become associated countries to the EU, having a privileged relationship with the European Union, while the three other countries have different status. This somehow uh, accentuates the inequality within the neighborhood as well. What the European Union has attempted to develop effectively in the last years is the democracy support in the European neighborhood. And what we have seen there is its efforts to guarantee the equal access of citizens to the democratic reforms in the neighborhood. So basically, when um, there are key reforms in the field of rule of law, of electoral accountability and constitutional uh, reforms that are linked to the association agreement, the European Union requires the development 
development of comprehensive and inclusive strategies for the participation of citizens and uh, different social groups in these reform processes. Uh, so this is one of the key elements that the EU has developed since 2010. And uh, since then, also, it has developed a very effective support uh, for civil society organizations. We cannot avoid the topic of the day, war in European soil. How do you think the EU's foreign policy will handle a return to war in Europe? Is the soft power approach era over for the EU in times of war? Soft power Europe is a qualifier that was used mainly to distinguish how the EU acts in comparison to other global powers, whether the Americans, the Chinese, or some of its own member states. The European Union has always used a wide array of instruments, even to a certain extent some of the more security-oriented ones. And obviously war on the continent forces the European Union to rebalance uh, its instruments. And when I say European Union, especially when we talk about issues of war and peace, one means to bear in mind it's the European Union and its member states. And we see here that the European Union has so far proven quite successful at keeping more or less of a coordinated response between its member states to what's happening and unfolding in Ukraine. But will the European Union as a global actor change? Yes, it will have to engage in areas it has not engaged in before, for example, arms export, which it has already done. But it will also probably become more focused on its own backyard. It had for the last 20 years sought to carve out for itself a more global profile as it destroyed the entire globe. With the crisis in its own backyard, probably a lot of its energies will be refocused onto its own continent, bringing in again a new form of inequality. Its limited energies and resources will not be spread equally across the globe as more of its energies and uh, treasure are focused on the eastern neighborhood. What do you think, Marta, how do you think the relationship with the neighborhood is impacted by this new idea of a Europe of power, political power, but also defense power and European war? So uh, basically, the Ukrainian crisis is a very new challenge uh, that has made evident some of the internal difficulties of the EU that have been on the table for the last decades. So what Frederick mentioned is that we have definitely seen a very significant progress in the development of coordinated mechanisms, as in the field of sanctions, for example. However, the access to energy in the, in the next month uh, will definitely uh, pose a new challenge for the European Union and for the development of such coordinated and unified approach towards the neighborhood and the crisis in Ukraine. So what I would say is that in the coming months, we will see if the European Union manages to, to remain united and to develop additional instruments as uh, the, the political coordination that we are seeing in the last weeks. Picking up on what Marta just said about the energy crisis or the looming energy crisis, it's another beautiful illustration of how global tensions for the EU in the world can loop back or feed back internally into new forms of inequality and tensions within the European Union. So again, this relationship between the outside and the inside, the EU's action outwardly can contribute to alleviate or increase inequalities in third countries. But what happens in third countries, like a war in Ukraine, can in turn improve or worsen inequalities within the European Union as well.
And in the political public arena, there's a lot of tension as well as how does the European Union has to react to this kind of things. Does it mainly focuses inward towards solving its own internal problems and the problems of its citizens, or does it contribute to the outside and help stabilize international relations? Can we actually, and I think you've already answered a bit of it, Frederick, can we dissociate the two? Is it possible in this to respond mostly to nationalist claims that let's focus on our own internal problems? Can we dissociate internal problems from external ones and just focus within the borders of the EU? The recent war just reminds us that how fragile the European construction is and the direct relationship between the inside and the outside. Now, how the citizens and the political parties and the public debate reacts to that reminded fragility or reasserted fragility can be ambiguous. In some cases, it will foster a deeper engagement with the outside, trying to address the fragilities being exported or imported into the EU from outside. In other cases, it will be a pullback. It will be a sense of trying to strengthen an imagined fortress Europe against a unstable outside world. And we see this pendulum movement in national and European debates again and again. But with a war at the doors of Europe, that movement of the pendulum just swings harder and harder each time. We asked some of our students to pitch in and share with us the issues that they are trying to make sense of when it comes to inequality and the European Union. I propose we listen to Jean Fabregetz, president of the Student Association of the IEE, SAIES, and continue with your reactions. I wanted to ask our expert question about the candidate status of Ukraine. Just to remind, Ukraine obtained the candidate status less than four months after applying, while other countries, such as Bosnia and Herzegovina, applied in 2016. So is the granting of candidate status to Ukraine not more a political gesture than a real will to integrate Ukraine to the EU in the long run? The acceptance of the candidate status is an important gesture of the European Union towards Ukraine and Moldova because these countries together with Georgia have been advocating and they have uh, exerted a lot of pressure in the last years uh, for this uh, status. However, it is important to keep in mind that the way that it was accepted, uh, it illustrated the geopolitical dimensions of the European Union because this is not uh, the first case that the European Union accepts the candidate status to countries that have important role in a tense geopolitical situation, as was the case of Bulgaria and Romania, when they acquired their status. However, it is important to keep in mind that both the EU and the candidate countries, they have acknowledged that there is a long way ahead before the negotiations actually start. So basically, Ukraine and Moldova will have to develop many internal political reforms uh, in order to start negotiations. And in this sense, it is important to remind that the uh, integration process of the EU has adopted a much slower pace in the last years. So probably uh, we'll have to wait for many years until we see the actual integration of Ukraine and Moldova. But it is important that uh, this status was recognized and it was conceded to these countries. Hello everyone, my name is Martina Rubino. I am 25 and as John and I'm a student of the second year of the Master in European Studies and I'm the president of the student association and magazine Eyes on Europe. 
And my question for the experts will focus mainly on uh, the diversity that we have seen in the behavior of the European Union concerning the topic of solidarity and uh, migrants, as we have seen that the European Union has immediately reacted to the invasion of Ukraine, and it has been very proactive in uh, giving help military help, but also humanitarian help, which is something that I appreciated a lot because I've found myself uh, working with different migrants in uh, different occasions. But I've never saw the European Union being as active as it has been uh, in this occasion. And my question will be, this experience that we had in uh, uh, welcoming migrants from Ukraine fleeing the war could uh, be actually a lesson that we can use for uh, renewing the Dublin system and uh, trying to find a solution to all kind of migrants that are coming to the European Union to find a better life. The first thing to remember is that the visa facility uh, for Ukrainians is not a legal agreement. It's a political agreement that was agreed at the Council and that therefore sets up a political context in which countries have agreed to set up certain facilities for a certain amount of time. As this is a political agreement, it does not require to fulfill all the legal necessities of equality, legal standards, uh, transparency. It was an emergency measure set up in the context of an emergency, an invasion of a neighboring country. Now, it is not so much a case of one citizenry, the Ukrainians, being favored in the face of all other citizenries wanting to enter the European Union. It is a response to a very specific crisis, a war. As such, it is not a facility extended to the Ukrainians. It is a facility extended to those victims of the, Ukraine, the Russian invasion. Now, in its implementation, we discovered that there were a lot of imperfections in the system, insofar as that people who were in Ukraine but did not have the Ukrainian nationality were caught between the various procedures. This is an inevitable consequence of the fact that it was a political emergency measure. If we want to deal with such questions, then we need to move away from ad hoc political arrangements towards more structural solutions. And this indeed brings us into the waters of revising the Dublin Agreement, which is a framework, a regulatory legal framework that foresees how migrants who enter the European Union are managed and which has shown its limits even before the recent Ukrainian crisis. Before I let you go, because we cannot leave under such a dark note. We have been in a complex context of crisis for so long. I mean, the economic crisis, the pandemic, and now the war. What's next for the EU and its role in the world? What do we have in the, in the future? Enlargement? Isolation? Cooperation? Where do you see the EU go? I think one of the... <laughs> lessons from the omni-crisis of the last 10 to 20 years is that a lot of where the EU will be going will be decided by external factors. The EU has had to react to a lot over the last 20 years, whether it's a global economic crisis, a global pandemic, or a global neighbor power invading a country at its doorsteps. 
And so the EU has and still is master of its own faith to a large extent, but it is not an isolated, superbly isolated entity on an island somewhere. Increasingly, it has had to factor in external exogenous shocks and factors, and I do not foresee that changing anytime soon. Whether or not the EU is able to weaponize itself or to strengthen its resilience or to improve its instruments is an open question. And I do think that questions of internal inequality and internal fragmentation will be determining in whether or not the EU will be able to equip itself. I agree with uh, Frederick regarding the development of instruments in the field of external action uh, that uh, we will need to wait in order to see if the EU manages to develop adapted instruments and tools for the reaction to the external challenges that we see. However, we can also see that there are different levels of uh, cooperation uh, that are being developed uh, in the present, uh, including other countries that are not members of the EU, and also the development of smaller coalitions within the EU. So probably what we will see in parallel to the development of uh, EU instruments uh, in external action, we will also see the use of such smaller coalitions that uh, they try to counter some of the events that we, uh, or react to some of the events that we see in the neighborhood in the coming years. And enlargement, it has been on the table for many years, and I think that the process will continue even more now when it is used as a geopolitical instrument in the neighborhood and among in the Western Balkans as well. So in short, many, many topics to make sense of. <laughs> for sure. Thank you very much, Marta Matrakova, Frederick Poignard, for sharing with us your knowledge and your scientific perspective on these issues that we're all trying to understand. And we invite everyone to join us very soon for more, more attempts to make sense of what's going on in, out and around the European Union. Thank you all. Making sense of EU.